and God, we pray that you would speak to us from on high. Let our words be your words. May your words penetrate our hearts and minds, and may you be glorified. May your people be blessed. Would you bless the proclamation as well as the preparation of this message and use it for your satisfaction and to bless your people in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Again, Mark chapter 16, just two verses, verses 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Because he lives. Because he lives. After Pilate pronounced a judgment against Jesus, the Bible tells us that the soldiers led him um, away. And once inside the praetorium, they summoned the whole company, a garrison of soldiers, which would have been around 600 men. And there they decided to put on a show to make merry and to mock Jesus by staging a ludicrous Im, uh, imitation of the carnation and crowning of a king. So it was, they clothed him, the Bible tells us, in a purple robe, which symbolized royalty. And then they twisted a, a crown of thorns, perhaps made out of palm spines or palm needles. They twisted it, and then they force-pressed it upon the head of Jesus. And then they began to taunt him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And verse 19 states that, that it gets worse. They, they struck him on the head with a reed. The imperfect tense of the verb struck in the text carries with it the notion of repeatedly striking. Not just one time, but over and over and over again, hitting Jesus. Not only that, but the Bible says they spit on him, which was the lowest form of degradation. Then bowed their knees, they bowed their knees and they began, pretended to to worship him and when their horrible and hostile and hideous and hateful charade was complete they took the purple robe off of him and put his sweaty bloody dirty clothes on him and led him away the bible says to a place called Golgotha the place of the skull to be crucified Verse 25 records, now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And those who passed by blasphemed him. That means that they dishonored his messiahship. They dishonored him as the savior of the world. They blasphemed him. They rejected him as God's only son. And then they spoke against his holy nature his righteous character. 
using vulgar and offensive language. Not mild conversation, but vulgar and offensive language. They hurled insults at him. And likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said these words, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. He preached redemption to others, but he can't help himself. He, he taught other people, but look at him now. There's nothing he can do for himself. How is that for your king? Let the Christ, they said, the king of Israel, descend from the cross that we might see and believe. Let him come down and then we will see for ourselves and we will believe. Now when the sixth hour had come, that's noontime, darkness engulfed the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock p.m. This cosmic eclipse was a concise correlation to the words of the prophet Amos spoken in Amos 8, verses 8 and 9, where God declares, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and it's in like a bitter day. So it was when the lights had gone out that day all over the world when Jesus sacrificed his body and shed his blood when the sin debt for all humanity had been paid in full. Jesus declared these monumental words in John 19 verse 33 words. It is finished. Powerful words. It is finished. Life-changing words, it is finished. Now notice, pay close attention here. Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It is finished meaning that the totality of his redemptive work on Calvary's cross was complete. It is finished means that nothing could be added and nothing could be taken away. When Jesus died for your sins and my sins on Calvary's cross, the work of redemption of saving us was finished. But Jesus was not. Oh, to be sure, the devil and all his hopes, all of his host hoped that Jesus was finished. They were betting on Jesus being finished. 
They were banking on Jesus being finished. They were bragging on Jesus being finished. They were boasting about him being finished. They were even broadcasting that he was finished, but Jesus was not finished. Mark 15 and 43 informs us that Joseph of Arimathea, who had come to faith in Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, what's interesting to note here is that it was customary that those who had been crucified were not deemed fit to receive a decent burial. Those who were crucified were said not to be fit. They didn't, they didn't deserve a decent burial. They were deemed unfit, unworthy to have a decent burial. So their bodies, under normal circumstances, were taken out to a place called the Valley of Hinnon, also known as the Valley of Ashes, and their bodies were thrown into a perpetual world or a constantly burning fire which consumed their corpse. When you read the history, you'll find out that that's what, that's what they did to them. They, they threw them on a trash heap and they burned their bodies on the outskirts of the city because they were not fit, at least in the minds of those who crucified them, to have a decent burial. But as God would have it, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, and Pilate released the body of Jesus to him. That is remarkable. Because in their minds, Jesus was unfit. In their minds, he was a criminal. But yet, Pilate released the body of Jesus to Joseph. Footnote. When God writes the script for your life, when you decide to follow his script, when you make up in your mind that you will do your life God's way and not your own way or not someone else's way, when God writes the script and you decide to follow the script that God has written for your life, it matters not what tradition dictates. It matters not what custom demands. It matters not what used to be, what has been, or even what people say. The only thing that matters when you decide to live your life in the will of God, the only thing that matters is what God says. Because whatever God says will be. So in spite of every obstacle that may have become an issue in this matter, Pilate gave Joseph of Arimathea permission to take the body of Jesus away. Mark 15, 46 states, Then Joseph brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in linen, and laid him in a tomb hewed out of rock and rolled a stone against the door. Seems like a pretty simple process, doesn't it? But it was more complicated than that. One source I read described the procedure like this. 
a deep trench was dug. And then uphill in that trench would rest a huge stone that had been cut out of rock that weighed a hundred uh, weighed one point five to two tons. That's about three to four thousand pounds of weight. This gigantic stone would be kept in place by a small stone lodged in the track, a wedge in the track in front of it. Then when the body had been placed in the tomb, men would pull out the small rock of a small stone and the force of gravity would do the work that would take more than 30 or 40 men to do. Namely, the huge stone would roll along the track until it completely covered the opening. As an added measure of security, Matthew 27, 66 informs us that the stone was sealed, that means with a Roman seal, and it was guarded for fear that someone, imagine this, would steal his body. But thanks be to God. That's not how the story ends. As Paul Harvey would say, and now for the rest of the story now for the story you long to hear. Now for the story you've been looking forward to as we journey through the Lenten season and as we move through Holy Week. Now for the rest of the story. A remarkable story. A wonderful story. A life-changing story. A joy-giving story. Now for the rest of the story. Mark 16, 1 through 6 states, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might anoint the body of Jesus. And while en route to the tomb, while they were making their way to the tomb, reality set in. And they began to discuss, the Bible says, among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for, uh, for us. They realized this stone was heavy. They knew the process. They knew that it would take 30 or 40 men, yet these women of faith were willing to go. And they were talking amongst themselves, who will help us? But upon their arrival, something marvelous had happened. When they got there, something magnificent had occurred. When they arrived on the scene, something miraculous had taken place. That is, when they looked and saw, they looked and saw that the stone had been rolled away. What a mighty God we serve. Get in route. Regardless of your fears and your anxieties, get in route and expect God to do miraculous things. Don't sit back and worry. Don't sit back and pout. Don't sit back and cry. Don't sit around and moan. Get in route and see what God will do. 
Upon entering the tomb, they saw an angel clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed, and and rightfully so. But the angel set their minds at ease and said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place for yourself where they laid him. Do a personal investigation. He was here, but he's no longer here. See it for yourself. place where they laid him reveals what was. The place where they laid him reiterates what used to be but no longer is. The place where they laid him recounts history. It's a done deal. It's, It's past tense now. Because on the third day, Sunday morning, Jesus got up out of the grave with all power in his hands. And because he lives, he laid the foundation for us. Because he lived, he, he, he pinpointed some things that we ought to focus on. Because he lives, we can count on some things. First, because he lives, we can count on the power of God. It's, a, it's an omnipotent power. It's not limited power. It's, it's all power. We can count on the power of God. Verse 4 tells us, when the women looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. The power of God. The power of God is still moving stones. Don't you know that the same power that moved the stone and raised Jesus out of the grave can move stones out of your way no matter how large they are? God's power can remove doubt. God's power can move depression. God's power can move disappointment. God's power can tear down barriers. God's power can build bridges. God's power, I tell you, can make crooked places straight. God's power can open doors that no man or woman can close. God's power can close doors that nobody can open. God's power will give you friends that will stick closer to you than your own blood relatives. God's power can make your enemies behave. God's power. Heal your body. God's power can regulate your mind. God's power can work out any dilemma in life that you are facing. God has omnipotent power. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave can raise you up out of any temptation, every trial, and all trouble that comes your way. 
no matter what it is, there is absolutely nothing too hard for God. There are things that are too hard for your pastor. There are things that are too hard for the deacons. There are things that are too hard for your doctors to do. There are things too hard for people to do, but nothing is too hard for God. Nothing broke that he cannot fix. Nothing too hard for God. And here's another footnote. Just because God hasn't done it for you yet doesn't mean that God can't do it for you. And it certainly doesn't mean that God won't do it for you. Uh, uh, King David reminds us in Psalm 27, 14, sometimes we just got to wait on God. I'm glad that that the tomb scene was there because even in the tomb, Jesus waited. Waited on God. Sometimes we just got to wait. That's what the tomb says. The tomb represents waiting. Sometimes we've got to wait on God. Psalmist said, David said in Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. David reiterates, he says, wait, I say, on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31 continues the theme of waiting on God with these precious words. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on God. That's what the tomb says. Wait, oh God. Everything won't happen in an instant. Wait, oh God. Sometimes it takes a long time, but wait, oh God. Wait on him. Tears in your eyes. Wait on him. Sickness in your body. Wait on him. Trouble in your way. Wait, oh God. He's able. Wait on him. The resurrection reminds us that sometimes we get in too big of a hurry. Look at the tomb. His body laid there. And yet we are always in a hurry. The resurrection reminds us, the tomb reminds us that some things take time. Sometimes our fleshly agendas try to push God. We try to push God. We try to push God's plan into action. We try to make God hurry up. We try to make God do what we want him to do. We try to make God. Yet the the resurrection reminds us that we can count on God's power to move when and how he sees fit. So just wait on him. Let the world race by, but you wait on God. 
let those who think that they know better than God knows, let them move on with whatever agenda they are pressing, but you wait on God. Let those who think they know better than God move on, but you wait on him because in his time, he will roll the stone away. But second, because he lives, we can count on the presence of God. Verse 5 declares, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long right white robe sitting on the right side. The angel in the tomb represents the presence of God. God's represented. Represents the presence of the true and living God. His presence proves on this resurrection morning, his presence proves that no matter how dark things got for Jesus, God was always there. Likewise, no matter how dark, how daring, how difficult, how dismal, how disturbing circumstances of our lives unfold, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you will go through, the resurrection reminds us that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, can I tell you something? Sometimes family members will leave you. Sometimes friends who claim that I'll be with you and that I'll love you and I'll stand by you and I'll support you and you can count on me. Sometimes they'll turn on you, walk away and leave you, but God will never leave you under any circumstances. What shall separate us from the love of God. Trouble, tribulation, but, but God says no in all these things. Paul said we're conquerors through him who loves us. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Third, because he lives, we can count on the purposes of God. Verse 6 states, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Get this. Don't miss this. God had a purpose for Jesus. God had a mission for Jesus. God had a mandate for Jesus. God had a ministry for Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17 describes Jesus' mission, his mandate, and his ministry like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the empty tomb validates the reality that we can always count on the purposes of God being fulfilled. Nothing can halt, nothing can hinder, nothing can hamper God's ultimate goal. God has a divine mission, mandate, and ministry for you. 
Just keep your hand in God's unchanging hand and know that whatever God has called you to do, God will help you do it. His purpose will be lived out and unfolded in your life. No need to worry. No need to, to fret. Just hold on. Stay in the will of God. His purpose will be lived out in and through your life. Fourth, because he lives, we can count on the perspective of God. What cruel humanity saw as tragedy, God saw as triumph. What callous humanity Deemed to be vagrant, God viewed as victory. What cold humanity viewed as defeat, God visualized as deliverance. The empty tomb challenges us to get God's perspective on every situation. Although it looks bad, God may be viewing it for our best. That's what Romans 8, 28 said. Paul said, God works all things together for good for those that love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purposes. We need to learn to view every situation from God's perspective. Because from the perspective of the disciples, that cross meant tragedy. But in the eyesight of God, that cross was triumph. Fifth and finally, because he lives, we can count on the prerogative of God. You see, the empty tomb 2,000 years later is still standing as a monumental reminder of God's prerogative. God's prerogative, he is God. He can do whatever it is he, he wants to do. I, I know people have sang the song, it's my prerogative, it's my, my, my. I can do what I wanted to do, but only God can do what he wants to do. So the empty tune is a visible reminder to us of God's prerogative. Calvary's cross and resurrection morning lets us know beyond a doubt that we can count on the will of God. So let us, let us know this morning, let us know that beyond a doubt that we can count on God's will, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through now, no matter what you've got yet to go through, you can count on God's will, on God's prerogative. What was God's will from the tomb? Well, it was God's will. From the tomb that hope be restored. It was God's will that hearts be revived. It was God's will that harmony be renewed. It was God's will that happiness be reinstated. It was God's will that heaven be represented. It was God's will that humanity be reclaimed. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's why Jesus died a painful death. That's why Jesus stayed in the grave all night Friday and all night Saturday night, but early on Sunday morning. That's why Jesus got up with all power in his hands. And because we, he lives, we can face 
face tomorrow. With sickness, we can face tomorrow. With death, we can face tomorrow. With trouble in our way, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives. Fear is gone because we know Jesus holds the future. Life is worth living because he lives.